Well, we are going to continue now in Matthew this Sunday, Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to finish up the section of Jesus' birth and the details surrounding uh, his coming into the world. And then we're going to start in on chapter 3 in two weeks on the 29th. Next Sunday, we're going to have a friend of mine named John Aiken here. John is an Old Testament professor at Southeastern Seminary and uh, head of a pastoral training program for the North American Missions Board. I know John primarily through the Christ-Centered and Clear organization, and he's going to be up here for the conference next Saturday, so I'm excited to have John come and share the word for us. Uh, October ends up being a month where we highlight our partnerships and our connections to other pastors and churches, largely because October is the month where we have the National Pillar Conference, and it just ends up being a good time for us to do that. And I think it's important, and the elders think that this is an important thing for our church to do, so we don't start to think that we're the only ones doing the right thing. We are not. There are thousands of faithful churches preaching the gospel, doing the same things we do, coming to the table every week, and we want to highlight the fact that we don't consider ourselves some kind of unique, special congregation. We are partnered with hundreds of other churches in the network that do the same things. We just feel it's good to promote this kind of partnership and have you here from other godly men who handle the word. So that's what's happening next Sunday, and then we'll be back to Matthew uh, as we start the month of November. But as we get into our text this morning, I want to just give a bridge to where we left off in chapter 1, because we're going to continue into the same context here. But what we're going to see is Matthew is going to switch his emphasis just slightly. So if we look back into the end of chapter 1, Matthew is emphasizing the divinity of Jesus by talking about his conception of the Holy Spirit, and he is going to also in that section, he emphasized that Jesus is son of God and son of man. So we see Joseph, we see all these connections. Well, the idea of Jesus being the son of David by virtue of Joseph being his legal father qualifies him then to sit on David's throne, right? And we talked about that from 2 Samuel chapter 7. The idea of Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit means that he is divine, he is God which gives him the authority and the right to sit on the eternal or everlasting throne. And Matthew has all of these texts in mind as he writes this account of the coming of Jesus. Well, when we start chapter 2 now this morning, actually we're going to take all of chapter 2, we are still dealing with the same context, the same details surrounding the birth of Jesus. But Matthew's going to take a little different approach as we move into chapter 2, and he's going to emphasize a different historical connection between Jesus and one of the patriarchs. I'll give you a little bit of a hint. As we're going to read through our text in a moment, you're going to see things like baby boys being killed. We're going to see things like a, a flight getting away from your life. We're going to see God calling and commissioning someone to his service and returning home when it's safe to do so. Does that sound familiar to any other account in the Bible? Moses. And I'm going to develop this as we go through a little bit more, where you will see the connection between Jesus and Moses, and I'm going to explain why that is significant, but for now, let's get into the text. Would you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, and we will start by reading verse 1. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Please follow along as I read. 
Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and the scribes and the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written in the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen where it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother. And flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother. Go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of Herod, his father, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come now before you and we ask for your help. We submit, Lord, that we don't understand, we don't seek as we should, we don't clear the clutter out of our minds so that we are able to understand your word as we should. But we ask for your help this morning, that you would give us grace, grace in the preaching, grace in the listening. Pray that your word would stand forth as clear this morning. And even though we're in, a, we're in a big section of text, there's a lot of things going on here. Father, would you give us understanding and the ability to understand what you have for us this morning. And we gain encouragement and strength and hope from what we see in this text. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. As we begin this section with Herod and the wise men, I want to point out something to you. I want to point out that there is something happening with Herod and the wise men that is going to project itself now out onto the rest of the book of Matthew. And what it is is a contrast. So on one hand, we have the wise men. Okay? They are coming from a foreign land. It says they're coming from the east. It's far away. And we have Herod, who is right there and local. So the wise men come, and they're rejoicing. They see this star. They don't even know what it's really about. They know it's a king. And they come, and they're rejoicing. And I think this fits with the Gentile mission theme of Matthew. We mentioned last time that because there are Gentiles in Jesus' lineage, it shows that he has the right to be the Savior, not only of the Jewish people, but the ends of the world. And we see this pictured in the coming of the wise men, that they are the ones who come and rejoice at the birth of the Savior, while Herod hears this news and he considers it a threat to his throne, and he's infuriated by what he hears. And so this antithesis, this opposite reaction, is going to play itself out through the entirety of the book of Matthew. And it culminates in the Great Commission with Jesus giving his redemptive power and authority to the ends of the world, while the people right there in Jesus' context, the Pharisees, the scribes, even his family, reject him as the Messiah. So this is kind of playing out here as we see the wise men come. They seemingly accept Jesus for who he is while those closest to him are enraged at his even being there. And that's going to play itself out and develop as we move through Matthew's gospel. So let's get right into the text. Matthew tells us that wise men traveled from the east. And I think sometimes we hear wise men and we think intelligent kind of well put together, uh, really deep thinking men, and they come in. Well, it's interesting because the word wise men is the word magi in in the Greek. And the word magi was used for those who mixed astrology and magic and sorcery, and they tried to read the heavens and figure out what they could sell, what kind of information they could sell. The same word is used to describe Elamus and Acts chapter 13, who is a magician, he's a magi, same word used here, and Paul calls him the son of the devil and the enemy of all righteousness. So what my point is that when the wise men come, when the magi come, this is again representative because they represent total pagan world. They have no inclination naturally for the things of God, especially the one true God, but they come and they worship Jesus, and they bring gifts to him. You might remember from the beginning of Isaiah chapter 7, where this prophecy is made, and it says, a people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And what we're seeing here is that Jesus is the light. He's the one who is coming into the world to spread light to the darkness. John will develop that in his gospel way more. And the magi represent darkness the blindness that lies over people because of their sin. Well, the Magi come following the star, this astronomical phenomenon in the heavens, and it leads them to Jerusalem. And upon arriving, they inquire with Herod where they might find the newborn king. And notice what verse three says. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So here's what's going on. You catch that? Herod the king, 
hears that there is another king born and he gets a little bit nervous. And we can understand that, right? If you're the monarch, if you're the emperor, and these people come and they say, hey, we, we're really excited. We heard about this new king that's going to dethrone you. <laughs> you're going to be a little bit worked up, right? Well, that's what's happening here. And I understand why Herod is exercised about this. But what do we make about the rest of the verse that says, and all Jerusalem with him? Why was everybody else worked up at the mention of, well, there's a new king that was born? Herod had a reputation for being unstable. He was jealous, he was violent, and he was paranoid. He murdered his wife and two of his sons because he thought he overheard them talking about who would succeed him as king. And in his instability, he kills them because he thinks they're threatening to take over my kingdom. Before he died, he issued a decree that on the day of his death, 2,000 Jews be crucified so that everybody would mourn the anniversary of his passing. This didn't come to pass, praise God, but you can understand this is the kind of maniac that he was. So, when the people of Jerusalem hear that Herod is troubled, they are troubled because they have experienced the kind of instability, the kind of knee-jerk reaction, and they were often the brunt of his anger as he violently takes out his rage on the people in Israel. So that's what's going on. When it says Herod was upset, we get that. When it says the people of Jerusalem, all of them were uneasy, it's because they knew the instability of Herod. So after talking with the wise men and consulting with his own scribes and priests, he determines that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. And it's the same text that we read this morning from Micah 5 that helps them determine where this coming king is going to be born. So Herod sends the Magi to find the child. And he says, when you get there, do whatever you gotta do, but, but come back and, and report to me so that I can worship him too. And fingers crossed and lying all the way. So here's what's going on. The Magi continue to follow the star and eventually they do get there and they find the child. Look at verse 11. And going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him and opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Now, when they visit Jesus, when the wise men finally get there, approximately 12 to 18 months have passed since the birth of Jesus. Oftentimes, we see nativity scenes set up, and everybody's in the stable, and the wise men are kind of moving the ox aside so they can bend over to the manger. That's not what happens. They're coming into the house, not the, not the stable. There's time that has passed here. Even when we get up to verse 16, we're going to see that Herod did the math and he figured out that this newborn king was born sometime in the last 24 months. So a little bit of time has elapsed here since the birth of Jesus. Now the gifts that the Magi are bringing are representative. Just like their very coming was representative, the gifts also have significance. They were very costly. Matthew calls them treasures. And what this tells me is that the Magi even though they were Gentile astrologers, again, representatives of the pagan world, they understand the significance of the coming of Jesus and they bring their best to him. It's not a detail to be tossed aside. And we might not immediately recognize the coming of the wise men as a fulfillment of prophecy directly, but 
In Matthew's context, this is pointing, like I just said, to the expansive reach of the gospel. And how many times in the Old Testament do we see that the nations, the peoples are going to come and worship God? Isaiah talks about God bringing his sons and his daughters from afar, from the ends of the earth. Psalm 86, 9, all the nations you have made will come and will worship before you, O Lord. This is exactly what we're seeing in Matthew 2. As the wise men, the magi come, Gentile, pagan, magicians come, and it's a foretaste of the power of the gospel that will be accomplished through the Great Commission. So before the Magi can return to Herod and expose the location of the baby, they're warned in a dream to take another route home from Jerusalem. And so, for the moment, Jesus is safe, but he's still in close proximity to the maniac, Herod. He's still sitting there. There's still possibility for his demise. Well, once again, God gives Joseph a message in a dream. See this? This is the second time that God has spoken to Joseph through a dream. And each time, Joseph does what God tells him to do. This is very significant. We mentioned a couple weeks ago that even though Joseph isn't the main part of this story, it is so encouraging to see that God's plan, his providence includes Joseph being a just and obedient human father for the child. So Joseph does what he says. And I want to look at verses 13 to 15. And I want you to notice two things specifically. First, look at how the angel describes Jesus and Mary in relation to Joseph. You notice this? Look at verse 13. The angel says, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And there's basically no connection to Joseph here other than he's the one that's being told to do these things. The angel doesn't say, rise, take your son, take your wife and and get out of here. Why do you think that's significant? Is that significant or is that just like a grammatical thing that doesn't really matter? There's significance there. And here's what it is. Joseph is not the main point of this account. We've mentioned that, I just said that a second ago, we said that a couple weeks ago, and the angel is doing the same thing Matthew is doing by emphasizing the divine nature of Jesus means that Joseph, not being Jesus' biological father, is rather insignificant. And speaking of Jesus as the son of his mother, rather than saying your son, shows that Joseph is not the most important man in this situation. Jesus is. All of these little details are culminating together to reinforce to the reader that Jesus is the promised Messiah. It's not about his human connection. It's about his divine conception by the Holy Spirit, giving him the right to be the king, the everlasting king. It's very important. The second thing to notice is that God sovereignly orchestrates every detail of these events to bring about the fulfillment of his word. Look at verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. Out of Egypt I called my son. There were other options. There were other places that Joseph and Mary could have fled to to get away from Herod and his maniac tendencies. But Egypt made the most sense. It had a large Jewish population already, a diaspora, we might call it. It was easier to travel there from Bethlehem. But aside from all of those sort of surface things, this was God at work. 
It is the fulfillment of God's word so that what was spoken by the prophet would come to pass. God is involved in every aspect of this account, and I'm going to apply that later as we close. Well, enough time passes. Herod figures out that he's been duped by the Magi, and he is furious. So just to be safe, he orders the execution of all male children two years old and under. And even though he's told that the child was to be born in Bethlehem, you can see in verse 16, he expands the region just to be safe. Verse 16, he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all of the region surrounding. So Herod is intent on squashing this threat to his throne by, you know, playing with the numbers a little bit, making sure that he gets the age right and expanding the territory in this awful, wicked, sad event. Even though this is so horrible and wicked, God still uses this and it is a way of fulfilling his word. There's a lot of speculation as to why Matthew chooses to quote what he quotes here from Jeremiah 31 about Rachel and her weeping. And it's unusual in the sense because in the context of Jeremiah, it's not a messianic prophecy. It's, it really has to do with the restoration of Israel through the Messiah. The promise of the new covenant comes later in Jeremiah 31. But I think that Matthew borrows this language to express the sorrow and the mourning that results from Herod's wickedness. Let me tell you what's going on in Jeremiah 31. Maybe this will help us understand why he quotes this. So Rachel is the wife of Jacob, as in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of the patriarchs. She's considered to be the mother of the nation in a sense. And she's buried at Ramah, at least according to tradition. So in Jeremiah's day, as the people are being led off to captivity, Assyria, Babylon, they are walking by this place where Rachel is buried, and, and metaphorically or symbolically, she weeps because the people of God are being taken away. They're being led off. They're being destroyed in some ways. And so it's meant to show this, this deep sense of loss this deep sense of mourning for what happened. And of course, it's figurative. Rachel has died thousands of years before. But I think that Matthew is using this example to show this is the kind of response that happens when Herod comes in, destroys the babies, the male babies in Jerusalem. There is sorrow and mourning just like there was in the past. So direct fulfillment of a specific prophecy, not really, but Matthew, knowing that Jeremiah is the weeping prophet, chooses to use his words because his readers, the Jewish people, would have understood, oh, that's right, we remember this. We know it was happening. This, this is a similar kind of loss which produces this wailing and this weeping from this terrible event. Let's keep moving here. We'll look at verses 19 and 20. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Herod dies in 4 B.C., and it produces a, a sort of collective sigh of relief from the people of God. As I mentioned, he was an unbelievably wicked man, 
And it wasn't just Mary and Joseph and Jesus that fled during that time. Many of the Jewish people got out of Dodge, and they were trying to find somewhere that they could go to be safe. So when the news breaks that Herod is dead, it's kind of a reverse exodus as a lot of God's people start coming back to the region because the monarch is dead. Well, they begin to return to Jerusalem, and this is now the third time that an angel appears to Joseph in a dream, telling him what to do and why. And for the third time, Joseph obeys. But here again, Matthew wants his readers to understand the connection between Moses and Jesus. And I, I know it might not look like that on the surface. Bear with me. I'm going to explain what I mean, and I think you'll see these connections as well. What the angel says in verse 20 is almost an exact word-for-word -word quotation from what God told Moses in Exodus 4. So back in Exodus 4, Moses has fled Egypt because his life was in danger, and he hides out in Midian. And just a little bit earlier in chapter 3 of Exodus, God had appeared to Moses in the burning bush. He had commissioned him and said, you are going to be the one that's going to save my people from their slavery. And now Moses is wondering, okay, if I'm going to be this person to go and, and do this act of God, how am I going to know when it's time to go back? How do we know when it's safe to return to the place that he fled? Well, God is going to tell him. And he tells him the same thing he tells Joseph. So listen to Exodus 4, 19. This is what the Lord says. The Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Matthew 2, 20. Rise, take the child and his mother, go back to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Now you have to understand, even if we read Matthew and we don't immediately make that connection, many of the readers in Matthew's day would have. They memorized the Torah. They studied it day and night, not necessarily always out of a desire to know and love God, but because that's what they did. That was part of their tradition. That was part of their religion. They were steeped in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. So when they hear this language, rise, go back, it's safe, they are going to make the connection. And I want us to make the same connection. Even if we don't see that really clearly, we have to understand that Matthew is trying to make a connection here that will help his readers understand the significance of the events that are going on here. But here, we have to just stop and say, okay, but what's the big deal? So what if there's similarities? I mean, there's, there's similarities between Jesus and David and Jesus and all the other people in the Old Testament in some ways, right? What is the big deal about this? Don't you believe in just there being coincidence in the Bible? No, I don't. There is no such thing as coincidence in the Bible. I don't believe in it. I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe in the power of God. I believe in the wisdom of God who is able to work everything out according to his plan. No coincidence in the Bible. To the Jewish people, you have to understand, what did Moses represent? The law. He was the lawgiver. He's the one who went up to the mountain, met with God, heard from God, comes down off the mountain and delivers to the people of God, this is how you ought to live. He represents the standard, the measuring line, the rod. He was the law giver. So by Matthew connecting Jesus to Moses, what is he doing? 
he is telling his people, you remember what you read before about Moses, about him being the one to deliver the law, about how there'd be one coming like Moses, but greater, who would bring the law to the people. It's him. It's Jesus. He's not going to save you from physical slavery. He's going to save you from slavery to sin. And Matthew's making these connections here. You remember in Deuteronomy chapter 18, God is talking to Moses and he says this, I'm going to raise up for your people a prophet like you from among your brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded. And Matthew is saying, it's him. See, it's not just that they're the same. It's not that Moses and Jesus have some things in common, but that Jesus just happens to do it a little bit better. That's not it. Jesus is greater than Moses because not only does he speak the word of God to God's people, he fulfills all of God's word for God's people. This is what we're gonna see in chapter five when Jesus says, don't think that I have come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill it, to obey it, to accomplish it for God's people. And Matthew is trying to get his readers excited about the fact that this is something new, this is something great, this is a fulfillment for the people of God. And I press this in here because I wanna snap you out of your ordinary humdrum kind of reading of the Bible. I want you to see these kinds of connections so that you don't just start in Matthew and forget that we have Genesis to Malachi behind it and we have Mark to Revelation in front of it. I want you to read your Bible canonically, meaning with all of the canon of Scripture in mind because if we just drop in here to Matthew chapter two and we read about, oh, okay, well, this is the events of Jesus' life and it's safe for him to return and whatever, without connecting those back, we're gonna miss the point of his coming. And his coming is to fulfill every law, every promise, every guarantee that God has given to his people are fulfilled in Jesus, the greater Moses. And I want you to know that so that you can experience the glory of God's word. It is so alive. It is so active. And I want you to know that as you read the scriptures. Now, as we come to the end of the chapter, end of chapter two, we're gonna see again the providence of God in directing Jesus and his parents back to safety and once again fulfilling a promise that was made. So when Herod dies, he has three sons left. He had five total, but he killed two of them. He was a nutcase. So he has three sons left, and when he dies, each of them are placed over a certain region. Okay, they, were, they were given governance over these certain areas. So Archelaus happens to be the most wicked of all the three. He's the most like his father in the sense of his hatred for the Jewish people, his tyranny, his unpredictability. And he is the one that is appointed to rule over the region of Judea. So Joseph and Mary and Jesus are coming back from Egypt because God tells them it's safe to come back. And on the way back, Joseph checks Facebook and he sees that Archelaus is the one who's been appointed over Judea and he's afraid. They didn't have Facebook. It was a scroll. 
So he is afraid of what's going to happen because he knows who this guy is. He knows that he's going to do the same things. And God confirms that in Joseph by warning him to go another way. He confirms that suspicion and says, stay away from there, whether this is another dream or however God told him. And he goes instead to the city of Nazareth. But as we can see in the last verse of the chapter, this is not some kind of random, meaningless detail to the story. It was prompted by God to fulfill what had been spoken hundreds of years earlier about the coming of the Messiah. Now the interesting thing is, there is not a single prophecy in the Old Testament that says the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. None. Nothing explicit like that. So what's going on? Is Matthew losing his mind? Is he speaking out of both sides of his mouth? Nope. He's not. He knows his Old Testament, and he is right. And what he's doing is he's employing what we do all the time, and that is the use of etymology. You know what that word means? The study of words and their meaning, why words mean what they mean. So Matthew knows that there isn't a single prophecy like this, which is why... This is why I say every detail of this is so important. Look at the text. Look at the last verse. This is verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now normally, Matthew says, what was spoken by the prophet, singular, and then he quotes. It's not what happens. He uses the plural. Why? This is important. Isaiah chapter 11, 1 and 2. Zechariah 3, 8. Jeremiah 23, 5. Zechariah 6, 12. All of these passages refer to the coming Messiah as the branch. You say, well, why is that significant? Because of Matthew's knowledge of the language. The word Nazareth or Nazarene was from the Hebrew word branch. So someone from Nazareth was called a branch person. And Nazareth itself was called place of the branch. So when Matthew says what was spoken by the prophets, he is referring to all these times that the prophets refer to the coming Messiah as the branch. Out of the root of Jesse will come the branch, my servant, the branch, all of these messianic prophecies. Well, in his day, that's what Nazareth meant. So you see here that the details are so important and Matthew is saying this was foretold. And so it's not, again, a specific individual prophetic word being fulfilled, but it is the collective broad sense fulfillment of the prophecies, plural, that the Messiah would be the branch. And here we have God superintending the details of the return to Judea where Jesus the Messiah comes and resides in Nazareth. What an amazing display of God's power and his wisdom. You know, sometimes when we preach big narrative sections like this that are telling a story, there's a lot going on, it can be hard to narrow down application to a certain thing. Sometimes, at least for me, I'll just be honest, it feels more informational, like I'm kind of sharing with you what happened. And I hope we learn, that's, that's a part of what we're doing, but I want to apply 
one thing that I see in this text, a, a specific detail, and I pray that this is an encouragement to you. This is the, probably the most encouraging thing for me this week as I study this, so I want to share this. I want you to think back over this chapter, Matthew chapter 2, and I want you to notice all the moving pieces, all the components, all of the possibilities for things to go sideways. So the wise men come and they worship Jesus. And they could have gone back and told Herod, right? Yeah, they were warned in a dream, but they had dreams all the time. I mean, they were astrologers. And they could have said, yeah, that's crazy. Let's go tell Herod what he wanted to know, but they didn't. They could have kidnapped baby Jesus. They thought he was the king. Let's take him back to our land. He can be king there. It'll be great. They didn't do it. When they fly to Egypt, could have been attacked on the road. They were carrying a lot of stuff, gold, all these things. They didn't. They could have got caught up in some sort of political revolt in Egypt. They were foreigners. They had no rights over there, but they weren't. Why? Why do things work themselves out the way that they do here? Do you know why? Because God is in control of everything. The theological word for that is the sovereignty of God. That he has the power and the right to do whatever he pleases. And at every turn in this passage, things could have gone that way, but they don't. Because God is sovereign. And I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking as we look at our world, as you look at your life, you look at your family, things spinning out of control, there's chaos, there's war, everything else going on. None of those things are outside of the reach of God. And the same kind of intentional care and providential intervention, the same steering, the same governance that God displays in the coming of his son Jesus is available to everyone who has faith in Christ. I've said this so many times, I hope you're getting it, that to be united to Christ means that what happens to Jesus happens to us. So in this situation, we see that God ordains and directs and orchestrates and superintends every detail of Jesus' life at this point. And if you belong to him, if you've put your faith and your trust in him, that same care is for you. Isn't that a comfort to know? With all of the things you can't control, you can surrender your life to Christ and allow the power of God to lead you instead of your own kind of wisdom that you think you have. So my exhortation to us this morning, this is to me, this is to you, do not fear. Don't look around at your family, at your life, at your work, at the world, at the politics, at the whatever, and despair because God is in control. Christ is seated on his throne. Nothing surprises him and we can trust that he will always do the right thing. Now I know that sounds really great on paper but when it comes down to it we often have a tough time applying those things to our lives. And I'm just gonna hang around after the service today up front. If, if you would like to pray with someone 
If you just have things going on in your life, it's like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to think. I want to pray with you. I want to talk with you. I don't have all the answers, but I have this. And I want to lead you to Jesus so you can give up all that burden of trying to fight it out on your own. And I just think Matthew 2 is such a beautiful picture of the providence of God working everything out for his glory and for the good of his people. Let's pray. Lord, I repent for the times in which I have not always cast my burdens upon you, but rather I've tried in my own strength to work through things. It's just so easy for us, Lord, to, to try to work everything out in our own strength, but we can't. And I'm so thankful for the reminder of Matthew 2, which just so, so clearly shows that you are in control of everything. You're trustworthy. You're true. You are righteous. You are good. And it's demonstrated in so many various ways. Just in this short chapter, we saw so many instances of your word being fulfilled, your promises being kept, the prophecies made through your prophets being fulfilled in Christ. And all of these things are meant to show us we can trust you, we can hope in you, and not be put to shame. And so God, would you do it? Would you come by your spirit, give us faith, give us hope, and give us trust in you? We don't control anything in this world. We might think we do, but we don't. And I pray that you would work in our hearts, Lord, to remind us that we can cast aside the desire for control and simply trust you. Hope in God, for in him our plentiful redemption. So Father, do this work among us. Help us to trust in you. Help us to remember your word and take confidence from it. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.